Chapter Two, Part Four of the Stones of Venice, Volume Three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Malone. The Stones of Venice, Volume Three by John Ruskin. The Roman Renaissance, Part Four. I have not such an acquaintance with the modes of entombment or memorial in the earliest ages of Christianity as would justify me in making any general statement respecting them. But it seems to me that the perfect type of a Christian tomb was not developed until toward the thirteenth century, sooner or later, according to the civilization of each country, that perfect type consisting in the raised and perfectly visible sarcophagus of stone, bearing upon it a recumbent figure, and the whole covered by a canopy. Before that type was entirely developed, and in the more ordinary tombs contemporary with it, we find the simple sarcophagus, often with only a rough block of stone for its lid, sometimes with a low-gabled lid like a cottage roof, derived from Egyptian forms, and bearing, either on the sides or the lid, at least a sculpture of the cross, and sometimes the name of the deceased and date of erection of the tomb. In more elaborate examples, rich figure sculpture is gradually introduced, and in the perfect period the sarcophagus even when it does not bear any recumbent figure, has generally a rich sculpture on its sides, representing an angel presenting the dead in person and dressed as he lived to Christ or to the Madonna, with lateral figures, sometimes of saints, sometimes, as in the tombs of the Dukes of Burgundy at Dijon, of mourners, but in Venice almost always representing the Annunciation, the angel being placed at one angle of the sarcophagus and the Madonna at the other. The canopy, in a very simple four-square form, or as an arch over a recess, is added above the sarcophagus, long before the life-size recumbent figure appears resting upon it. By the time that the sculptors had acquired skill enough to give much expression to this figure, the canopy attains an exquisite symmetry and richness, and, in the most elaborate examples, is surmounted by a statue, generally small, representing the dead person in the full strength and pride of life, while the recumbent figure shows him as he lay in death. And at this point, the perfect type of the Gothic tomb is reached. Of the simple sarcophagus tomb, there are many exquisite examples, both at Venice and Verona. The most interesting in Venice are those which are set in the recesses of the rude brick front of the Church of St. John and Paul, ornamented only, for the most part, with two crosses set in circles, and the legend with the name of the dead and end orate pro anima, in another circle in the center. 
and in this we may note one great proof of superiority in Italian over English tombs, the latter being often enriched with quatrefoils, small shafts and arches, and other ordinary architectural decorations, which destroy their seriousness and solemnity, render them little more than ornamental, and have no religious meaning whatever, while the Italian sarcophagus are kept massive, smooth, and gloomy, heavy-lidded dungeons of stone like rock tombs, but bearing on their surface, sculptured with tender and narrow lines, the emblem of the cross, not presumptuously nor proudly, but dimly graven upon their granite, like the hope which the human heart holds, but hardly perceives in its heaviness. Among the tombs in front of the church of St. John and Paul there is one which is peculiarly illustrative of the simplicity of these earlier ages. It is on the left of the entrance a massy sarcophagus with low horns as of an altar placed in a rude recess of the outside wall, shattered and worn, and here and there entangled among wild grass and weeds. Yet it is the tomb of two doge, Jacopo and Lorenzo Tiepolo, by one of whom nearly the whole ground was given for the erection of the noble church in front of which his unprotected tomb is wasting away. The sarcophagus bears an inscription in the center describing the acts of the doge, of which the letters show that it was added a considerable period after the erection of the tomb. The original legend is still left in other letters on its base to this effect. Lord James died 1251. Lord Lawrence died 1288. At the two corners of the sarcophagus are two angels bearing censers, and on its lid two birds with crosses like crests upon their heads. For the sake of the traveller in Venice, the reader will, I think, pardon me the momentary irrelevancy of telling the meaning of these symbols. The foundation of the church of St. John and Paul was laid by the Dominicans about 1234, under the immediate protection of the Senate and the Doge Giacomo Tiepolo accorded to them in consequence of a miraculous vision appearing to the Doge, of which the following account is given in popular tradition. In the year 1226, the Doge Giacomo Tiepolo dreamed a dream, and in his dream he saw the little oratory of the Dominicans, and behold, the ground all around it, now occupied by the church, was covered with roses of the color of vermilion, and the air was filled with their fragrance. And in the midst of the roses there were seen flying to and fro a crowd of white doves with golden crosses upon their heads. And while the doors looked and wondered, behold, two angels descended from heaven with golden censers, and passing through the oratory, and forth among the flowers, they filled the place with the smoke of their incense. Then the doge 
heard suddenly a clear and loud voice which proclaimed, This is the place that I have chosen for my preachers. And having heard it, straightway he awoke, and went to the senate, and declared to them the vision. Then the senate decreed that forty paces of ground should be given to enlarge the monastery, and the Doge Tiepolo himself made a still larger grant afterwards. There is nothing miraculous in the occurrence of such a dream as this to the devout Doge, and the fact of which there is no doubt that the greater part of the land on which the church stands was given by him is partly a confirmation of the story. But whether the sculptures on the tomb were records of the vision, or the vision a monkish invention from the sculptures on the tomb, the reader will not, I believe, look upon its doves and crosses, or rudely carved angels, any more with disdain, knowing how, in one way or another, they were connected with a point of deep religious belief. Towards the beginning of the fourteenth century in Venice, the recumbent figure begins to appear on the sarcophagus, the first dated example being also one of the most beautiful. The statue of the prophet Simeon, sculptured upon the tomb which was to receive his relics, in the church dedicated to him under the name of San Simeone Grande. So soon as the figure appears, the sarcophagus becomes much more richly sculptured, but always with definite religious purpose. It is usually divided into two panels, which are filled with small bas-reliefs of the axe or martyrdom of the patron saints of the deceased. Between them, in the center, Christ or the Virgin and Child are richly enthroned under a curtained canopy, and the two figures representing the Annunciation are almost always at the angles, the promise of the birth of Christ being taken as at once the ground and the type of a promise of eternal life to all men. These figures are always in Venice most rudely chiseled, the progress of figure sculpture being there comparatively tardy. At Verona, where the great Pisan school had strong influence, the monumental sculpture is immeasurably finer, and so early as about the year 1335, the consummate form of the Gothic tomb occurs in the monument of Can Grande de la Scala at Verona. It is set over the portal of the chapel, anciently belonging to the family. The sarcophagus is sculptured with shallow bas-reliefs, representing, which is rare in the tombs with which I am acquainted in Italy, unless they are those of saints, the principal achievements of the warrior's life, especially the siege of Vicenza and battle of Placenza. These sculptures, however, form little more than a chaste and roughened groundwork for the fully relieved statues representing the Annunciation, projecting boldly from the front of the sarcophagus. Above, the Lord of Verona is laid in his long robe of civil dignity, wearing the simple bonnet, consisting merely of a fillet bound round the brow, knotted and falling on the shoulder.
he is laid as asleep, his arms crossed upon his body, and his sword by his side. Above him a bold arched canopy is sustained by two projecting shafts, and on the pinnacle of its roof is the statue of the knight on his war-horse, his helmet dragon-winged and crested with the dog's head, tossed back behind his shoulders, and the broad and blazoned drapery floating back from his horse's breast, so truly drawn by the old workman from the life that it seems to wave in the wind, and the knight's spear to shake, and his marble horse to be evermore quickening its pace and starting into heavier and hastier charge as the silver clouds float past behind it in the sky. Now observe, in this tomb, as much concession is made to the pride of man as may ever consist with honor, discretion, or dignity. I do not enter into any question respecting the character of Can Grande, though there can be little doubt that he was one of the best among the nobles of his time. But that is not to our purpose. It is not the question whether his wars were just or his greatness honorably achieved, but whether, supposing them to have been so, these facts are well and gracefully told upon his tomb and I believe there can be no hesitation in the admission of its perfect feeling and truth. Though beautiful, the tomb is so little conspicuous or intrusive that it serves only to decorate the portal of the little chapel, and is hardly regarded by the traveler as he enters. When it is examined, the history of the acts of the dead is found subdued into dim and minute ornament upon his coffin, and the principal aim of the monument is to direct the thoughts to his image as he lies in death, and to the expression of his hope of resurrection, while seen as by the memory far away, diminished in the brightness of the sky, there is set the likeness of his armed youth, stately, as it stood of old, in the front of battle and meet to be thus recorded for us, that we may now be able to remember the dignity of the frame of which those who once looked upon it hardly remembered that it was dust. This, I repeat, is as much as may ever be granted, but this ought always to be granted to the honor and the affection of men. The tomb which stands beside that of Can Grande, nearest it in the little field of sleep, already shows the traces of erring ambition. It is the tomb of Mastino II, in whose reign began the decline of his family. It is altogether exquisite as a work of art, and the evidence of a less wise or noble feeling in its design is found only in this that the image of a virtue, fortitude, as belonging to the dead, is placed on the extremity of the sarcophagus opposite to the crucifixion. But for this slight circumstance, of which the significance will only be appreciated as we examine the series of later monuments, 
the composition of this monument of Con Mastino would have been as perfect as its decoration is refined. It consists, like that of Con Grande, of the raised sarcophagus bearing the recumbent statue, protected by a noble four-square canopy sculptured with ancient scripture history. On one side of the sarcophagus is Christ enthroned, with Con Mastino kneeling before him. On the other, Christ is represented in the mystical form, half rising from the tomb, meant, I believe, to be at once typical of his passion and resurrection. The lateral panels are occupied by statues of saints. At one extremity of the sarcophagus is the crucifixion. At the other, a noble statue of fortitude, with a lion's skin thrown over her shoulders, its head forming a shield upon her breast, her flowing hair bound with a narrow fillet, and a three-edged sword in her gauntleted right hand, drawn back sternly behind her thigh, while in her left she bears high the shield of the scholars. Close to this monument is another, the stateliest and most sumptuous of the three. It first arrests the eye of the stranger, and long detains it, a many-pinnacled pile surrounded by niches with statues of the warrior saints. It is beautiful, for it still belongs to the noble time, the latter part of the fourteenth century. But its work is coarser than that of the other, and its pride may well prepare us to learn that it was built for himself in his own lifetime by the man whose statue crowns it, Can Signorio de la Scala. Now observe, for this is infinitely significant, Can Mastino II was feeble and wicked and began the ruin of his house. His sarcophagus is the first which bears upon it the image of a virtue, but he lays claim only to fortitude. Can Signorio was twice a fratricide, the last time when he lay upon his deathbed. His tomb bears upon its gables the image of six virtues, faith, hope, charity, prudence, and, I believe, justice and fortitude. Let us now return to Venice, where in the second chapel, counting from right to left, at the west end of the church of the Frari, there is a very early 14th or perhaps late 13th century tomb, another exquisite example of the perfect Gothic form. It is a knight's, but there is no inscription upon it, and his name is unknown. It consists of a sarcophagus, supported on bold brackets against the chapel wall, bearing the recumbent figure, protected by a simple canopy in the form of a pointed arch, pinnacled by the knight's crest, beneath which the shadowy space is painted dark blue and strewn with stars. The statue itself is rudely carved, but its lines, as seen from the intended distance, are both tender and masterly. The knight is laid in his mail, only the hands and face being bare. The halberd 
and helmet are of chainmail, the armor for the limbs of jointed steel, a tunic fitting close to the breast, and marking the noble swell of it by two narrow embroidered lines, is worn over the mail. His dagger is at his side. His long cross-belted sword, not seen by the spectator from below, at his left. His feet rest on a hound, the hound being his crest, which looks up towards its master. In general, in tombs of this kind, the face of the statue is slightly turned towards the spectator. In this monument, on the contrary, it is turned away from him, towards the depth of the arch. For there, just above the warrior's breast, is carved a small image of St. Joseph, bearing the instrument Christ, who looks down upon the resting figure, and to this image its countenance is turned. The appearance of the entire tomb is as if the warrior had seen the vision of Christ in his dying moments, and had fallen back peacefully upon his pillow, with his eyes still turned to it, and his hands clasped in prayer. On the opposite side of this chapel is another very lovely tomb to Duccio dei Alberti, a Florentine ambassador at Venice. Noticeable chiefly as being the first in Venice on which any images of the virtues appear. We shall return to it presently, but some account must first be given of the more important among the other tombs in Venice belonging to the perfect period. Of these, by far the most interesting, though not the most elaborate, is that of the great doge Francesco Dandolo, whose ashes, it might have been thought, were honorable enough to have been permitted to rest undisturbed in the chapter-house of the Frari, where they were first laid. But, as if there were not room enough, nor waste-houses enough in the desolate city to receive a few convent papers, the monks, wanting an archivio, have separated the tomb into three pieces. The canopy, a simple arch sustained on brackets, still remains on the blank walls of the desecrated chamber. The sarcophagus has been transported to a kind of museum of antiquities, established in what was once the cloister of Santa Maria della Salute, and the painting which filled the lunette behind it is hung far out of sight at one end of the sacristy of the same church. The sarcophagus is completely charged with bas-reliefs at its two extremities are the types of St. Mark and St. John, in front a noble sculpture of the death of the Virgin, at the angles, angels holding vases. The whole space is occupied by the sculpture. There are no spiral shafts or panel divisions, only a basic plinth below and crowning plinth above, the sculpture being raised from a deep concave field between the two. But in order to give piquancy and picturesqueness to the mass of figures, two small trees are introduced at the head and foot of the Madonna's couch, an oak and a stone pine. 
It was said above, in speaking of the frequent disputes of the Venetians with the pontifical power, which in their early days they had so strenuously supported, that the humiliation of Francesco Dandolo blotted out the shame of Barbarossa. It is indeed well that the two events should be remembered together. By the help of the Venetians, Alexander III was enabled in the twelfth century to put his foot upon the neck of the Emperor Barbarossa, quoting the words of the psalm, Thou shalt tread upon the lion and the adder. A hundred and fifty years later, the Venetian ambassador, Francesco Dandolo, unable to obtain even an audience from the Pope, Clement V, to whom he had been sent to pray for a removal of the sentence of excommunication pronounced against the Republic, concealed himself, according to the common tradition, beneath the pontiff's dining-table, and thence coming out as he sat down to meet, embraced his feet, and obtained, by tearful entreaties, the removal of the terrible sentence. I say, according to the common tradition, for there are some doubts cast upon the story by its supplement. Most of the Venetian historians assert that Francesco Dandolo's surname of Daub was given him first on this occasion in insult by the cardinals, and that the Venetians, in remembrance of the grace which his humiliation had won for them, made it a title of honor to him and to his race. It has, however, been proved that the surname was borne by the ancestors of Francesco Dandolo long before, and the falsity of this seal of the legend renders also its circumstances doubtful. But the main fact of grievous humiliation having been undergone admits of no dispute. The existence of such a tradition at all is in itself a proof of its truth. It was not one likely to be either invented or received without foundation, and it will be well, therefore, that the reader should remember in connection with the treatment of Barbarossa at the door of the Church of St. Mark's, that in the Vatican, one hundred and fifty years later, a Venetian noble, a future doge, submitted to a degradation of which the current report among his people was that he had crept on his hands and knees from beneath the pontiff's table to his feet and had been spurned as a dog by the cardinals present. There are two principal conclusions to be drawn from this. The obvious one respecting the insolence of the papal dominion in the thirteenth century. The second, that there were probably most deep piety and humility in the character of the man who could submit to this insolence for the sake of a benefit to his country probably no motive would have been strong enough to obtain such a sacrifice from most men, however unselfish. But it was, without doubt, made easier to Dandolo by his profound reverence for the pontifical office, a reverence which, however, we may now esteem those who claim it 
could not but have been felt by nearly all good and faithful men at the time of which we are speaking. This is the main point which I wish the reader to remember as we look at his tomb, this and the result of it, that some years afterwards, when he was seated on the throne which his piety had saved, there were sixty princes, ambassadors in Venice at the same time, requesting the judgment of the Senate on matters of various concernment. So great was the fame of the uncorrupted justice of the fathers. Observe, there are no virtues on this tomb, nothing but religious history or symbols. The death of the Virgin in front, and the types of St. Mark and St. John at the extremities. Of the tomb of the Doge Andrea Dandolo and St. Mark's I have spoken before. It is one of the first in Venice which presents in a canopy the peace and idea of angels withdrawing curtains, as of a couch, to look down upon the dead. The sarcophagus is richly decorated with flower-work. The usual figures of the Annunciation are at the sides, and enthroned Madonna in the center, and two bas-reliefs, one of the martyrdom of the Doge's patron saint, St. Andrew, occupy the intermediate spaces. All these tombs have been richly colored. The hair of the angels has here been gilded, their wings bedropped with silver, and their garments covered with the most exquisite arabesques. This tomb, and that of St. Isidore in another chapel of St. Mark's, which was begun by this very doge, Andrea Dandolo, and completed after his death in 1354, are both nearly alike in their treatment, and are, on the whole, the best existing examples of Venetian monumental sculpture. Of much ruder workmanship, though still most precious and singularly interesting from its quaintness, is a sarcophagus in the northernmost chapel, beside the choir of St. John and Paul, charged with two bas-reliefs and many figures, but which bears no inscription. It has, however, a shield with three dolphins on its brackets, and as at the feet of the Madonna in the center there is a small kneeling figure of a doge, we know it to be the tomb of the doge Giovanni Dolfino, who came to the throne in 1356. He was chosen doge while, as proveditore, he was in Treviso, defending the city against the king of Hungary. The Venetians sent to the besiegers praying that their newly elected doge might be permitted to pass the Hungarian lines. Their request was refused, the Hungarians exulting that they held the doge of Venice prisoner in Treviso. But Dolfino, with a body of two hundred horse, cut his way through their lines by night and reached Mestre, Marghera, in safety, where he was met by the Senate. His bravery could not avert the misfortunes which were accumulating on the Republic. The Hungarian war was ignominiously terminated by the surrender of Dalmatia. The Doge's heart was broken, 
his eyesight failed him, and he died of the plague four years after he had ascended the throne. It is perhaps on this account, perhaps in consequence of later injuries, that the tomb has neither effigy nor inscription. That it has been subjected to some violence is evident from the dental which once crowned its leaf cornice being now broken away, showing the whole front. But fortunately, the sculpture of the sarcophagus itself is little injured. There are two saints, male and female, at its angles, each in a little niche, a Christ enthroned in the center, the Doge and Dojaresa kneeling at his feet in the two intermediate panels, on one side the Epiphany, on the other the Death of the Virgin, the whole supported, as well as crowned, by an elaborate leaf plinth. The figures under the niches are rudely cut and of little interest, not so the central group. Instead of a niche, the Christ is seated under a square tent or tabernacle, formed by curtains running on rods. The idea, of course, as usual, borrowed from the Pisan one, but here ingeniously applied. The curtains are opened in front, showing those at the back of the tent behind the seated figure, the perspective of the two retiring sides being very tolerably suggested. Two angels, of half the size of the seated figure, thrust back the near curtain and look up reverently to the Christ, while again at their feet, about one-third of their size, and half sheltered, as it seems, by their garments, are the two kneeling figures of the Doge and Dojeressa, though so small and carefully cut, full of life. The Christ, raising one hand as to bless, and holding a book upright and open on the knees, does not look either towards them or to the angels, but forward, and there is a very noticeable effort to represent divine abstraction in the countenance. The idea of the three magnitudes of spiritual being, the God, the angel, and the man, is also to be observed, aided as it is by the complete subjection of the angelic power to the divine. For the angels are in attitudes of the most lowly watchfulness of the face of Christ, and appear unconscious of the presence of the human beings who are nestled in the folds of their garments. With this interesting but modest tomb of one of the kings of Venice, it is desirable to compare that of one of her senators of exactly the same date, which is raised against the western wall of the Frari at the end of the north aisle. It bears the following remarkable inscription, Anno mille trecentum quinquaginta decem, Prima die Julii sepultura, Domini Simonii Dandolo, Amador de Justicia, e desiroso de Arcese el ben comum. The Amador de Justicia has perhaps some reference to Simon Dandolo's having been one of the junta who condemned the Doge Faliero. 
The sarcophagus is decorated merely by the Annunciation group and an enthroned Madonna with a curtain behind her throne, sustained by four tiny angels, who look over it as they hold it up, but the workmanship of the figures is more than usually beautiful. Seven years later, a very noble monument was placed on the north side of the choir of St. John and Paul to the Doge Marco Coronado, chiefly with respect to our present subject, noticeable for the absence of religious imagery from the sarcophagus, which is decorated with roses only. Three very beautiful statues of the Madonna and two saints are, however, set in the canopy above. Opposite this tomb, though about fifteen years later in date, is the richest monument of the Gothic period in Venice, that of the Doge Michele Morosini, who died in 1382. It consists of a highly floored canopy, an arch crowned by a gable with pinnacles at the flanks, boldly crocketed and with a huge finial at the top representing St. Michael, a medallion of Christ set in the gable. Under the arch, a mosaic representing the Madonna presenting the doors to Christ upon the cross. Beneath, as usual, the sarcophagus, with the most noble recumbent figure of the doors, his face meager and severe and sharp in its lines, but exquisite in the form of its small and princely features. The sarcophagus is adorned with elaborate wrinkled leafage, projecting in front of it into seven brackets, from which the statues are broken away, but by which, for there can be no doubt that these last statues represented the theological and cardinal virtues, we must for a moment pause. It was noticed above that the tomb of the Florentine ambassador, Duccio, was the first in Venice which presented images of the virtues. Its small lateral statues of justice and temperance are exquisitely beautiful and were, I have no doubt, executed by a Florentine sculptor. The whole range of artistical power and religious feeling being in Florence full half a century in advance of that of Venice. But this is the first truly Venetian tomb which has the virtues, and it becomes of importance, therefore, to know what was the character of Morosini. The reader must recollect that I dated the commencement of the fall of Venice from the death of Carlo Zeno, considering that no state could be held as in decline which numbered such a man amongst its citizens. Carlo Zeno was a candidate for the ducal bonnet, together with Michael Morosini, and Morosini was chosen. It might be anticipated, therefore, that there was something more than usually admirable or illustrious in his character. Yet it is difficult to arrive at a just estimate of it, as the reader will at once understand, by comparing the following statements. 1. To him, Andrea Contarini, succeeded Morosini at the age of seventy-four years, a most learned and prudent man, 
who also reformed several laws, Sansovino Vite de Principi. 2. It was generally believed that if his reign had been longer, he would have dignified the state by many noble laws and institutes. But by so much as his reign was full of hope, by as much was it short in duration. For he died when he had been at the head of the republic but four months. Sabellico, liber octo. 3. He was allowed but a short time to enjoy his high dignity, which he had so well deserved by his rare virtues, for God called him to himself on the 15th of October. Muratori Anali d'Italia 4. Two candidates presented themselves, one was Zeno, the other that Michael Morosini, who, during the war, had tripled his fortune by his speculations. The suffrages of the electors fell upon him, and he was proclaimed Doge on the 10th of June. Daru, Histoire de Venise, Libre Dix. 5. The choice of the electors was directed to Michele Morosini, a noble of illustrious birth, derived from a stock which, coeval with the republic itself, had produced the conqueror of Tyre, given a queen to Hungary, and more than one doge to Venice. The brilliancy of this descent was tarnished in the present chief representative of the family by the most base and groveling avarice, for at that moment, in the recent war, at which all other Venetians were devoting their whole fortunes to the service of the state, Morosini sought in the distresses of his country an opening for his own private enrichment, and employed his ducats not in the assistance of the national wants, but in speculating upon houses which were brought to market at a price far beneath the real value, and which, upon the return of the peace, insured the purchaser a fourfold profit. What matters the fall of Venice to me? so as I fall not together with her, was his selfish and sordid reply to some one who expressed surprise at the transaction. Sketches of Venetian History, Murray, 1831 The writer of the unpretending little history from which the last quotation is taken has not given his authority for this statement, and I could not find it, but believed from the general accuracy of the book that some authority might exist better than Daru's. Under these circumstances, wishing, if possible, to ascertain the truth and to clear the character of this great Doge from the accusation, if it proved groundless, I wrote to the Count Carlo Morosini, his descendant, and one of the few remaining representatives of the ancient noblesse of Venice, one also by whom his great ancestral name is revered, and in whom it is exalted. His answer appears to be altogether conclusive as to the utter fallacy of the reports of Daru and the English history. I have placed his letter in the close of this volume, Appendix 6, in order that the reader may himself be the judge upon this point.
and I should not have alluded to Daru's report except for the purpose of contradicting it, but that it still appears to me impossible that any modern historian should have gratuitously invented the whole story, and that, therefore, there must have been a trace in the documents which Daru himself possessed of some scandal of this kind raised by Morosini's enemies, perhaps at the very time of the disputed election with Carlo Zeno. The occurrence of the virtues upon his tomb, for the first time in Venetian monumental work, and so richly and conspicuously placed, may partly have been in public contradiction of such a floating rumor. But the face of the statue is a more explicit contradiction still. It is resolute, thoughtful, serene, and full of beauty, and we must, therefore, for once, allow the somewhat boastful introduction of the virtues to have been perfectly just though the whole tomb is most notable as furnishing not only the exact intermediate condition in style between the pure Gothic and its final Renaissance corruption, but at the same time the exactly intermediate condition of feeling between the pure calmness of early Christianity and the boastful pomp of the Renaissance faithlessness. For here we have still the religious humility remaining in the mosaic of the canopy, which shows the doors kneeling before the cross, while yet this tendency to self-trust is shown in the surrounding of the coffin by the virtues. End of chapter 2, part 4, reading by Malone.